Our sermon will come from the 17th chapter of Exodus, uh, verses 1 through 7. A pretty short section, but a really powerful section. Exodus 17. I need to turn there. I had my book to Ezekiel for the uh, call to worship. (laughs) Exodus 17, uh, beginning in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of that place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Holy and gracious God, may your Holy Spirit give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened and we may know the hope to which Christ has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance among us, and the greatness of his power for those who believe. Amen. I am often very amazed by the events of our past and how out of the blue they seem to reappear in our lives today. And they, when they come to mind, sometimes they cause us to look back fondly. Other times, not so fondly, with regrets and sadness. But generally when these things from the past come back to us today, especially things from the far past, they often come with a different perspective. In other words, we see the memory a little bit differently now through new circumstances, through maturity, and hopefully through a deeper and more profound spiritual walk. As I conclude this morning, I'm going to come back to this. But right now I'm just going to leave you hanging there. These seven verses that we're looking at this morning might not seem like it, but they are a treasure trove of riches. Hopefully, I'm going to be able to connect some dots for you this morning, and you will leave here saying, wow, those seven verses, all of that. It's a very important passage. This passage, along with a very similar passage, gets mentioned multiple times throughout Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we're going to begin with a little bit of background, since we're jumping right in to the middle of a book. 
let's refresh our memories a little bit. Going back to near the beginning of the Exodus, recall that God told Moses to strike the Nile River with his staff. The first plague against Egypt, the first judgment against Pharaoh. What happened when Moses struck the river? It turns into a river of blood. Now, as I go through these things, I want you to, something I want you to keep in mind, what undergirds all of this, this exodus, is the promise God made to Abraham. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That underlays all of this. So, Pharaoh has to go through all the plagues, including the final plague, which um, was the taking of the firstborn. So when Pharaoh finally relents and lets the people go, the Egyptian people were quite bereft and grieved, as you might imagine, confused. Our firstborn has died. So God tells the people of Israel, as they leave, take some of the wealth from the Egyptians with you. Since the Egyptians are in such a terrible state, uh, it doesn't seem like it was a big deal for him to do that. So then we come to the parting of the Red Sea in Exodus 14, followed by chapter 15, which begins with the people singing what we refer to as the Song of Moses. Here are just a few lines. As the people celebrated what God has done at the Red Sea. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So they set out from there, and they go into the wilderness. They travel for three days, and they come to Marah, where they find water. But the water was bitter. They couldn't drink it. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Moses calls out to the Lord, who showed Moses a log. And he says, throw that log in the water. Moses does. And the log turns the water sweet, and the people had water. And in that chapter, Moses writes that God tested them there. He was testing them. So next we find them at Elim a place where there are 12 springs of water, palm trees everywhere. So God sends them to a little oasis in the desert, and they seem to enjoy that. But they depart from there, and they enter the wilderness of sin. Now, the name sin does not represent sin in the way we think it does. Sorry. <laughs> it makes a really good story if it does, but it's simply a Hebrew word uh, for that location. Incidentally, we're only about two months into the whole Exodus now. Two months since they've left Egypt. So in Exodus 16, we find the people grumbling against Moses and Aaron. Once again, hear their words. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread until we were full. For you have brought us out in the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. God told Moses, I'm going to rain bread down from heaven 
to feed these people. And with that manna, he gave very specific instructions on how to gather it, when to gather it, when to eat it, when not to gather it, how to store it, how not to store it. Very specific instructions. And he said, At evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. For what are we that you should grumble against us? And if the bread from heaven were not enough, what did God send at night? He sent the quail. Remember them complaining about the meat pots? They had meat to eat. God sent quail. It is interesting to note that within the commands God gave them, there was a command to not gather on the seventh day. Gather a double portion on the sixth day, for on the seventh day you will rest. Of course, the people didn't follow the commands, did they? And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments? God was testing his people once again. And it appears that they failed once again. So that's where we're at when we come to our story in Exodus 17. We're still on the very front end of the Exodus. This will be the last stop before Mount Sinai and all the events that occur there. A couple of things to notice. Notice in verse 1, the movement from the land of sin is according to who? To the commandment of the Lord. It's important to note that it was God who led Israel to this place called Rephidim, where there was no water. The Israelites traveled, we are told, from place to place as the Lord had commanded. And while the cloud is not specifically mentioned here, we've previously been told in Exodus 13 that God leads Israel by means of a pillar of cloud in the daytime, and at night by a fire, by a light. So when the Israelites find themselves without water, it's because God put them there, in that place, without water. It was God's will for them to be in that dilemma. So in verse 2, we see people quarreling with Moses. Now jump to the end of the passage in verse 7. And again, we find that word quarrel. What I'm, what I'm wanting you to see is that at the beginning of our text and at the end of our text is this word quarrel. And it's bookending. It's framing what's going to happen in this story. Well, why is the word quarrel important, you might ask? In the previous episodes, recall that the people grumbled and complained. This word quarrel, however, takes things to a new level. Let me explain. The prophets of the Old Testament. One of the things we often overlook is what their role actually was. We tend to think of the prophets as the ones who came to tell the future. Well, we know it was much more than that. They're telling what will happen if you fail to repent and turn your heart to the Lord. Scholarship calls these covenant lawsuits, and almost all the prophets 
are enacting a covenant lawsuit against God's people because they're violating the covenant. The prophets, if you will, are the covenant prosecutors. So why am I telling you all this? The word quarrel in Hebrew is a legal term. It's much different than grumble and complain. It's a term that demands action. It's akin to bringing charges against someone. Charges serious enough that a hearing is required, a judicial setting, a hearing before witnesses and a judge. In verse 3, Moses asked the people, why do you quarrel with me? And why are they testing the Lord? Now those words change their language a little bit. Just slightly. When Moses tells them they're actually quarreling with the Lord, you're charging the Lord. So they redirect. Let's shift the focus back to Moses. And they grumble against him. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So in verse 4, Moses, who has no doubt grown weary of these people by now, grumbling time after time in spite of what God does for them each time, along with the fact that they have raised the stakes with this charge demanding legal satisfaction, the guilty must be punished. Moses does what he usually does, and he calls out to God. What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now, that's an interesting choice of words from Moses. If we just read it in, in passing, we don't think a lot about it. But the term stoning signifies the execution of judgment. It's the penalty for crimes of treason, amongst others, against God's people. Moses has reason to genuinely fear for his life at this point at the hands of the people he's leading. Hear now God's reply to Moses in verse 5. Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now I want you to picture yourself an onlooker to this story. Knowing what you know today, with your knowledge of what has happened thus far, including the slavery in Egypt, what do you see? A man walking in front of this crowd of people with important men beside him, behind him, a crowd behind him, a crowd behind them, and this man carrying a large wooden post. A piece of wood that represented judgment against Egypt. The rod that struck the Nile and turned it to blood. This is God's man walking with this piece of wood and this entourage. The man God would use to deliver this stiff-necked and obstinate people. If you were among the crowd, no longer an innocent bystander, but a part of the crowd, actually one of the people grumbling and complaining and quarreling, you would absolutely understand this picture. Moses was going to face judgment 
and the elders would serve as the witnesses. The people demanded a legal proceeding, and that is exactly what God was prepared to give them. Who's the real guilty party? Is it God's man? Is it the elders of Israel? Or is that the people? Was it you and I? Make no mistake what's going on. A judicial proceeding where guilt will be determined and judgment handed out. People didn't really need a trial. They'd already made up their mind that Moses was guilty. This trial was simply going to be a formality. What they needed was conviction and judgment. Moses will have one of two choices when the sentence is passed for his conviction. Produce water or face the consequences. So here's Moses marching along in front of his accusers, carrying his own instrument of divine wrath, divine judgment, to a certain conviction and punishment. Is the picture getting clear? Moses knew something the people didn't. Because in verse 6, God told Moses, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. So it seems that God's man, the one who would become the mediator of his covenant with the people, will be found guilty. Through Moses, God himself will be declared guilty. Moses had already warned the people their charges, their quarrel was against God in spite of the fact that he is not the guilty party. It's the people demanding justice for the guilty. Moses knows that his life will be spared. God's promised that when he strikes the rock, water will come forth and the people will drink. Interestingly, our story here does not depict that. It doesn't tell us that that's what happened. I told you this was a significant scripture passage. So significant that other Bible writers testify of the incident. Psalm 78 says, He splits the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow like rivers. He struck the rock so that the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Another psalm, he opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. Isaiah, they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. There are also numerous other mentions of water from a rock in the book of Numbers where this event, incidentally, almost identically will be repeated. More about that later. Verse 7 of our passage says this, And he called the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord with us or not? The grumbling of the Israelites in the wilderness was a persistent problem. It's not rare and infrequent that this happens. Furthermore, 
the sin of the first generation of Israelites is going to be repeated by the next generation. You see, the problem of grumbling is one that's common to every generation, in every age. So we find the events at Massah and Meribah, they are not limited to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I have done. The New Testament picks it up, Massah and Meribah, making this incident a lesson for us as well. Hebrews 3 and 4 discusses it. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about it, and we're going to look at that a little bit. Israel's lack of water was by divine design, for God was testing the Israelites. He says, I tested you at the waters of Meribah. And it was good for God to test them. It revealed their sinful condition, their wayward hearts, their unwillingness to be obedient. And yet God continued to bless them on the basis of his grace, not their behavior. God has every right to test his creatures. He is the creator. On the other hand, no creature has the right to test God, the creator. We don't have a right to put him to the test. Do we do it? I don't see any heads moving. Sure we do. We do do it. We put God to the test, don't we? Do we mean to? Maybe, maybe not. It doesn't matter. We do it. We put him to the test. God, prove yourself in the way that I dictate. Prove yourself that you are with me the way I want you to. See, the people of Israel didn't lack evidence. They lacked faith. Their faith was weak. If God is among us, then let him prove it. Not let him prove it, make him prove it. How arrogant. How inappropriate. The creature demands that the creator jump through hoops. Take, for example, Satan. He challenged our Lord to prove that he was the Son of God by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. But Christ rebuked him with a reference to the evil committed by the Israelites putting God to the test at Massah and Meribah. Satan had no right to challenge the Son of God to act in such a way. Jesus didn't have anything to prove. And throughout the New Testament, Jesus is constantly confronted by the religious leaders. His authority, his understanding of the law, his claiming to be the Son of God. These things are all challenged. <coughs> a better illustration of the kind of trust in God which does not put God to the test is found in Daniel 3. You remember these characters, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow down to worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image, even when threatened with being thrown into a blazing furnace. Their response to Nebuchadnezzar, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, 
we want you to know we will not serve your gods or worship the image of the gold you have set up. Faith trusting God, even when the results appear to be fatal. The Israelites should have learned by now that God promised to deliver them and not destroy them. What about you? Has God promised to deliver you? Or has he somehow promised to destroy you that nobody else knows about? Did you get a secret revelation from God? God always protected his people and he provided for their needs no matter how bad things looked. And yet when they ran out of water, they doubted him. They doubted his presence and they demanded a miracle. We're not so different. I'm not so different. I keep saying y'all. I mean me as well. Well, what did it mean, back to our text, when, Moses, when God told Moses, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb in verse 6? Well, for starters, Horeb is the term Moses most frequently uses for Mount Sinai. It's his preferred term. I don't know why. So we know they are very near to Sinai when this event occurred where the Mosaic Covenant being revealed is, is kind of the next big event. Remember the judicial theme of our story. There's a trial of sorts that's been going on. Charges have been levied against Moses and in turn against God. Accused of abandoning his people and bringing them to the desert to die. Not the first time these people have made these claims. And throughout the Pentateuch, this same whining, grumbling, complaining phrase gets repeated over and over and over. You think they would learn? I don't know. You think we would learn? They talk about returning to Egypt, to bondage, to slavery. What is our Egypt? If we were to return to Egypt, our bondage is to sin, to the prince of darkness. Things got a little tough and they want to go back. But the reality is, things got a little tough because A, God was either testing them or because of their disobedience to God. In our story, God is the one standing before Moses on the rock. The people look on as Moses prepares to strike the rock with his staff, the rod of judgment. But wait a minute, who's guilty here? It's not God. It's not Moses. It's God's people who are guilty. It's you and I. Yet here standing before Moses and all the people is one who is not guilty. Moses strikes the rod. Strikes the rock with the rod of judgment and water pours forth. Are you getting the picture? Do you see what's being foreshadowed here? At the very beginning of the Exodus, I hope by now you see that it was Christ represented by the rock. The rock struck with the rod of judgment on behalf of a sinful people. Now the people of Israel didn't see Christ in that time, but you and I do. And we're in pretty good company when we see that. Because the Apostle Paul saw the same thing. And he describes this very incident 
to the church at Corinth saying this in 1 Corinthians 10. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. You see, Moses wasn't the judge. God the Father was the judge, standing before all on the rock. The rock that was struck in order to provide sinful people with rivers of living water. This generation would continue to fail. And that's why they remained in the wilderness for so long. Remember back in the beginning when I told you about the manna and the instructions to follow that God gave them not to gather manna on the Sabbath day? God's response. This generation will not enter my rest. The Sabbath. The promised land. They're not going to enter. They've failed too many times. So this new generation of Israelites would eventually end the wandering phase and go in and possess the land. But not before they repeated the very same mistake of their forefathers. And this story is found in the book of Numbers, chapter 20. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from their presence to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces before God. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron and your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them, and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. So just like the first generation at the beginning of their exodus. We have the second generation at the end of the exodus playing it all out, the same thing over again, at the waters of Meribah. The waters of Meribah are the bookends of the exodus. Just like the quarrel is the bookend of our story today. Testing God frames the whole entire exodus. But there's something different going on here, isn't there? This time God commanded Moses to speak to the rock. No mention of striking the rock. What did Moses do? He struck the rock in anger. In fact, he struck the rock twice. And what did it cost him? Did water come forth? It sure did. The water flowed. But afterwards, God called Moses aside and said, 
You will not enter into my rest, into the promised land. You will not lead this people in because of your failure to obey me. He was supposed to speak to the rock. He was supposed to ask the rock to send forth water. Moses, just like his people, failed to heed God's command. But we have to ask, is there more going on here? Is there more than meets the eye? From the previous incident, we learn from the Apostle Paul that the rock was who? The rock, is, the rock represents Christ. We were painted a picture of the not guilty Christ being struck or smitten on behalf of the people so that they might receive life-giving water. Pretty fair to say then, as Paul also stated, that the rock followed Israel throughout their journey, that the rock Moses struck this time, twice in fact, is still a picture of Christ. God instructed him to ask for water, not strike it. Why is that a big deal? I think it paints a picture of the perfect sacrifice of Christ. The perfect, unblemished sacrifice. The sacrifice that Christ made is complete. It doesn't need to be added to. It doesn't need to have your works and my works added to it. There is no need for Christ to be struck or smitten, sacrificed again. The sacrifice is complete. It's whole. It was the perfect sacrifice. Of course, Moses and his people, just like the first instant, they wouldn't understand that. But you and I understand it. Because we have the whole story in front of us. We have the whole New Testament. We have all the biblical history to reflect on, to see that. In spite of all that God provided for his people, they remained rebellious. It's a wonder how Israel's perception that God was absent could be so far from reality. How could they question the lack of God's presence? Well, they were always looking for evidence. What are the, what's the proof? What's the sign? that God's present. We sometimes find it difficult to believe God's present when things aren't going well. We find it hard to believe that God would lead His people or His church into times of difficulty. But when we think this way, we're just like the Israelites. We're like our ancestors, our forefathers. We judge God's power and presence when things get tough And sometimes they're tough because of our actions. God disciplines his children. And did you notice that discipline and disciple are the same word? Different endings? They're the same word. They, have this, they mean the same thing. We tend to think of discipline as bad. It's trouble. I got in trouble. I did wrong. Maybe we did. Maybe we didn't. But think about discipline in the terms of discipleship. It's training. When you discipline a child, they may have done something wrong, but the reason that you're disciplining them is to teach them 
so that they learn, so that they grow. We're no different. Just because we're adults doesn't mean that God doesn't need to discipline us. He puts all of his children, including his son, according to Hebrews chapter 5, on our behalf, of course. The pages of Scripture testify over and over again. God does not abandon his people. And while we do not certainly look forward to times of adversity and testing, these are very often the times when God becomes most present and most precious to us. A good bit of divine discipleship is worked out in the quiet and lonely solitude of our own wilderness situations. when we perceive that apart from divine intervention and provision, we would surely perish. See, we like to think about discipleship in warm, fuzzy terms. Bible studies, those are all good. We don't very often think about discipleship in the terms of being in the wilderness. It's good to have intimate fellowship in our discipleship studies. It's good to share with others. But to be candid with you, most of the men, the disciples, for example, learned obedience in the lonely wilderness experiences. So it was so also for Abraham, for Jacob, for Joseph, for David, for the Apostle Paul, to mention but just a few. It's the same for you and I. we come to our greatest level of faith when God strips everything else away from us. When he takes the crutches away. The things that we rely on. When those things are threatened or taken away. Where else are you going to go? What else do you have? That's when God is the most present in our, in our lives. Did you know back in the, in the days, in the old days, I can say the old days because it's before our time, people used to uh, have a saucer under their teacup or their coffee cup. What was that for? <laughs> well, we don't really know where the custom came from. A lot of people think Sweden. And it's said that the Swedes would intentionally overfill their teacup so that it ran over into the saucer. Now, the purpose for this, so that, I'll I use myself as an example. When I get up in the morning, the very first thing I'm doing is getting a cup of coffee. And the very next thing that's going to happen is two ice cubes are going in that cup of coffee because I do not want to wait for it to cool down. I want to drink a coffee now. So I kind of get the saucer thing. So the, the liquid spills over into the saucer and it cools faster so that it's not too much. Drink from the saucer. Many, many years ago, early in my Christian walk, I listened to a lot of Southern gospel music. Um, probably not so much anymore, but there was a time in my life when it was very important to me. And there are still 
songs from that tradition, from that time in my life that, that are stuck with me. And I'll give you an example, Victory in Jesus. I went to the police academy as a pretty old man, 35 years old. That's old to be going to the police academy. You guys are probably sitting there thinking, Mike, you seem to start everything a little late in life. But <laughs> at any rate, there's this big hill behind the police academy. We run up and down every day. And we didn't just run forwards. We had to run backwards. And sometimes we had to crawl up it and crawl down it. Victory in Jesus was my mantra over and over and over. I heard an old, old story about a Savior came from glory. I sang it to myself. Over and over. It got, me, it got me up and down the hill. Recently, a friend had um, made a Facebook post about um, a cup overflowing. She said, oh, I saw the most beautiful poem. Well, I recognized the poem. It was a Southern Gospel song. It was actually a country song before recorded by Whispering Bill Anderson. And this fellow named Michael Combs recorded it later. And that's how I come to know the song. So as I conclude this morning, I just want to share the words of that song with you. Because it came back to me this week when I was working on this sermon. And this time with a little different meaning. I never made a fortune. It's probably too late now. But I don't worry about that much. I'm happy anyhow. As I go along life's journey, I'm reaping better than I sow. I'm drinking from my saucer because my cup has overflowed. I haven't got a lot of riches, and sometimes the going's tough. But I've got loving ones around me, and that makes me rich enough. I thank God for his blessing and the mercy he's bestowed. I'm drinking from my saucer because my cup has overflowed. I remember times when things went wrong. My faith wore a little thin. All at once, dark clouds broke, and the sun shined through again. So, Lord, help me not to grumble and complain about the tough rows I've hold. I'm drinking from my saucer because my cup has overflowed. If God gives me strength and courage when the way grows steep and rough, I'll not ask for other blessings. I'm already blessed enough. May I never be too busy to help others bear their loads. I'll keep drinking from my saucer because my cup has overflowed. It's quite possible that somebody in this room this morning or somebody very close to you is in the wilderness right now. It's also possible that they're in the wilderness because you put them there. Think about that. But if you're in the wilderness or someone you know is in the wilderness, be mindful that God has put them in the wilderness so that they might come to know him more deeply, more intimately. The same as he did with Israel, so that you come to the point in your life where you have no one but a gracious and loving God in whom to trust. First for your salvation, and then for your sanctification. I urge you this morning to trust and obey, for, obey God. Look for him in ways that you have not yet known him. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. 
God has a purpose in your being right where you are. Christ, who indwells you by the power of his spirit, wants to do something in and through you in that wilderness. Father, we thank, give thanks for your word. We pray that through your spirit that your words might touch our hearts, that our lives might be changed for the better, for our better, for our good, and for your glory. In Christ's name.